From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. On Thursday, June 29th, in the cases of Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina, the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, overturned affirmative action in higher education, restricting universities' ability to fully address systemic racial inequalities that persist in higher education. Affirmative action in higher education has been in place since the 1960s. This overturn is the latest in the Supreme Court's move to break with decades of precedent and undo long-held civil rights. Joining us now to unpack the decision is Renika Moore, director of the ACLU's Racial Justice Program. Renika, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off with the news, which is the decision. Um, we were all in a, in a flurry this morning reading it. What was the opinion of the court on these cases? Sure. So what the majority opinion um, seems to do is really move the goalpost in terms of how affirmative action is used by colleges and universities. Um, And so what we had starting from Bakke, um, almost 50 years of precedent, um, the court had established repeatedly that diversity was a compelling interest um, for colleges and universities to achieve and recognizing the benefits of diversity um, to achieve um, various academic goals and in other ways in, in just ensuring that our democracy reflects um, the entirety of our populace. What the court decided is that Harvard and UNC's affirmative action policies were unconstitutional. It sort of frames this as it's not really changing um, the standard and is following precedent, but it really is um, with this decision, articulating um, new rules. Um, and really, as Justice Sotomayor says in her dissent, it's really moving the goalpost um, around what colleges and universities have to do to comply with the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Okay, so to dig a little deeper, um, I want to get into the Equal Protection Clause. Um, the Students for Fair Admissions argued that Harvard's consideration of race violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, that UNC's consideration of race also violates the Equal Protection Clause, and then also Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The only discrepancy that being there that UNC is a public institution. Um, exactly compared with Harvard, which is a private institution. And the court seemed to agree with their argument. Um, So for our listeners, just to start off, let's break this down. What is the Equal Protection Clause of the the 14th Amendment? Sure. The Equal Protection Clause um, says essentially that that the state or a government cannot distinguish between citizens um, and that all citizens are entitled to equal treatment from the government unless um, the state Um, has some reason for doing so. And there are different kind of standards for um, how demanding um, the reason and how specific the reason is that the state gives uh, or that government gives um, for treating its citizens differently. So it might be, um, you know, there are certain types of reasons that only receive rational basis review, which is really the lowest level and the easiest to meet level of review. Um, And then there's intermediate um, scrutiny, you may have heard of scrutiny, um, which is a slightly higher 
a more stringent level of review. And then the highest level of review, which is really reserved for um, when this when uh, government is making distinctions between people based on race, like explicitly based on race, strict scrutiny applies. And that's really the most demanding level of um, examination um, and justification that the government has to give in considering the race of students um, in the college admissions process. Then that means they have to meet the highest level of scrutiny. Um, and so they have to establish that there's a compelling interest and um, that that interest, um, in this case, diversity is the compelling interest that the court has repeatedly upheld, mm-hmm. um, that that interest is nar- narrowly tailored to whatever policy um, the state is adopting. Um, so here that the consideration of race in a holistic admissions process is tailored to achieving diversity. And essentially they're saying that that's not what these policies are are doing or not um, effectively doing that, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah, they're saying that that's, you know, even though both of these schools have read the you know prior decisions closely and the lower courts found that they had met the requirements established by the Supreme Court in prior cases, um, and, you know, they had trials, heard full evidence and determined that, yes, in fact, both schools had had met the standard as it existed. Um, and so the court is saying, no, that's not the case. Um, and they're really kind of changing the uh, the standard and making it more restrictive and harder to understand. So in, in reading some of the analysis, I came across uh, Jamel Bowie's, uh, a columnist for the New York Times, tweet in which he responded to the opinion saying that the court has essentially inverted the 14th Amendment written explicitly to directly ameliorate the conditions of race hierarchy becomes in this kind of conservative movement uh, an amendment that says it's illegal to try to directly ameliorate the conditions of race hierarchy. Do you think that's a fair analysis? I do. I think what the court is, um, you know, what what the Equal Protection Clause was clearly designed to do at the time of its passage um, and through the history is to address um, our longstanding history of racial inequality, right? To right. address the legacy of slavery and other forms of racial discrimination. And so, and to do that, we have to look at race. Um, and the court is really um, um, pushing forward um, this I- ideology of colorblindness mm-hmm. to say that um, we're going to somehow overcome racial discrimination by not looking at race. And they try to use insight, you know, to, to major civil rights cases, including Brown versus Board of Education, um, which was at, which was about addressing um, inequality, which was about addressing um, really extreme racial segregation in our schools and recognizing that we had to consider race and we had to um, require integration of students um, mm-hmm. based on race to address the longstanding history of racial discrimination. And so the court is saying, no, 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 we can't look at race at all um, in order to overcome you know, this, this history of discrimination. And, and really that's just, that's, that's completely counter to what we've seen um, time and again, when we really have effective targeted um, policies to address um, inequality, to address exclusion, to address segregation, where we've seen real progress made and we've seen um, the reduction in disparities. Is it fair then to say that this decision kind of breaks from like 
quote unquote original intent? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean the original intent literally when the when the Fourteenth um, Amendment, um, which includes the Equal Protection Clause, was passed. This is exactly what um, the Congress that passed the Fourteenth Amendment was wrestling with and fully acknowledged and embraced. Um, so this is absolutely a break from from precedent um, and a break from the original intent of the Fourteenth Amendment. And I think that's what's um, um, so disingenuous about right. what um, the majority is doing. Um, and really is about their own kind of policy um, preferences and their own kind of ideological preferences, as opposed to being really rooted in the law and rooted in um, the precedent um, in this area and, and as applied to affirmative action. It does feel disingenuous. So I appreciate you getting into a bit of what has changed here. Um, I want to turn to what the decision says about what colleges and universities can consider if it's not explicitly race. Can you walk us through what the decision said is still available to consider when looking at an application? Right. And that's what makes it confusing because it is it does allow for the fact that students can still talk about the way that race um, has pot- potentially shaped um, their experience and um in positive ways with like it shaped their character, um, their unique abilities. It can, you know, you can talk about racism and you maybe face discrimination or that some aspect of your um, racial identity um, serves as a source of, I believe they use words, inspiration. And so they haven't completely foreclosed. And frankly, that would run up against First Amendment issues, but they haven't completely um, foreclose the ability of students to talk about their lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to say that student schools can take it, can take into account um, when students do that and take account, like what does that demonstrate about the student's ability to overcome adversity? Um, um, but I think they've really muddled the waters for colleges and universities to understand, okay, so what does that actually look like in practice? Um, Because what we, you know, the standard that was in place prior to this decision, courts had been applying for many years, um, for decades even, and had Mm -hmm. been, you know, had been applying them in workable ways that had really led to um, um, kind of meaningful diversity on college campuses, especially at our most selective schools um, that really are a pipeline to all manner of opportunity and are represented um, across our society and leadership roles, including on the Supreme Court. Exactly. And and this is only about affirmative action as it pertains to race, correct? Because we know that affirmative action um, can also apply to things like national origin or gender. Right. So the so this analysis was specifically about um, race. And, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of the different levels of scrutiny that the court applies um, for different types of classifications that governments mm-hmm. do. So this was specifically a discussion. The court is addressing these these the colleges and universities consideration of race specifically. So they didn't talk about the consideration of, of gender um, or national origin. Which I think it's worth saying that white women have been some of, or if not the biggest benefactor from affirmative action. Where we see conflict is is really when it comes to race-conscious affirmative action. 
Most Americans are not in favor of race-conscious affirmative action, but are in favor of need-based affirmative action, for example. What do you think is driving this gulf? Sure. I think it's complicated. It's it's really interesting. The polling information about how people feel about affirmative action can look really contradictory depending on how the question Mm. is asked. When people are asked, do they support policies and programs that expand opportunity for all students um, and recognize, you know, adversity and and account for that. Um, People are hugely supportive of that. Um, And, you know, we see that when programs provide opportunity and recognize that not all students stand on equal footing, um, Mm -hmm. that students across all races and ethnicities really step into those opportunities and thrive. And everyone celebrates those those outcomes because what you do see is people do support. They do want to see diversity in all sectors. They are deeply uncomfortable with um, any one sector or any, you know, desirable job or opportunity um, being exclusively open to one race. Um, there's real deep discomfort with that. And so, so I think there is, there is the public is you know and many member many many members of the public and, and many groups including black people are deeply uncomfortable with the idea of you have two people who are exactly equal mm-hmm. and um, one person simply because they're black getting a benefit they they don't agree with that that's, that's absolutely clear but that's not really what's happening that's not what we're seeing right um, and that's not why it was implemented in the first place exactly. It was done to address, you know, it was taken, the step was taken and, you know, the history of this um, was that affirmative action was adopted to address the longstanding exclusion and segregation of Black people um, and to really recognize the persistent inequalities that people face at an individual level and at a systemic level. And and do we see that, that aim bearing out in affirmative action as it plays into higher education decisions today? before this overturn? Was affirmative action essentially doing its job? So it was in many ways. There was still a lot of work to go, um, in part because um, the disparities are so great and we're still seeing um, such deep disparities and segregation in our K-12 systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had seen huge strides in in the representation of um, students of color, and that's Black students, Native students, Asian American students and Latino students. Um, and what we've seen, there are nine states that have banned affirmative action. And what we've seen in those states is we've seen that students of color across the board lose out, right? They've lost opportunities to attend the most selective schools in the state. And that includes Asian American students. And so what um, there were a number of briefs filed on behalf of Asian American organizations um, in support of affirmative action in the Supreme Court. And they really break down, you know, that um, the community is not the Asian American community is not a monolith and that um, many of um, many members of the Asian American community um, um, struggle you know, in the K-12 system as well and and deal with segregation and other kinds of like disparities and resources and opportunities. Mm -hmm. And um, that they too have thrived under affirmative action. I I really appreciate that because I I feel like in reading the decision, um, the court seemed to 
disagree or seemed to believe that um, there was no real benchmark um, in order to measure the goals of affirmative action. Like perhaps affirmative action is valuable, but when we actually look, take a step back and look at the data, if you will, that there's there's not a, a meaningful way to to measure the goals of, of of achieving meaningful diversity. They seem to also argue, like even back in the the Grutter decision, like when when will this end? Like what what will be enough? Um, how will we measure meaningful diversity? And I feel like what you just detailed really flies in the face of what they're saying that that they had been presented with a lot of data in fact, that, that said that yes. affirmative action is in fact working and that we are exactly. on our way. There were briefs submitted by Cal- University of California system and University of Michigan systems, two of the largest, most high profile states that have banned affirmative action mm-hmm. in which they talked about um, that even, you know, as they adopt, you know, measures to address kind of socioeconomic barriers um, um and other efforts that be like outside of um, kind of race conscious admissions that they were not able to um, that they had witnessed severe drops in enrollment of native students, which was the most dramatic, um, as well as black students. And they had seen drop offs in in um, um, in those categories and they really hadn't been able to to address that through other means. And so. Um, they really did have all this data, both from filings of the amicus briefs, but also from the, you know, the universities themselves showing the, the clear benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the challenges, too, and one of the one of the pieces of the decision that that feels more. Um, this is the moving of the of the goalpost and, and kind of um, creating this very elusive um, target to reach is that. The court has previously said that um, colleges and universities can't have very like hard goals, like they can't have quotas, mm. they can't have very measurable goals. So to say now that like, well, diversity is too elusive, um, really flies in the face of what the court has said in the affirmative action cases in the past. And to that end, the Supreme Court has held over the last 41 years, five times that it's legally permissible for colleges and universities to consider race. Most recently, this was in 2016. 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we know that the makeup of the court has changed dramatically. Are there other factors that you think have led to this departure from precedent? That seems to be the most dramatic one. When we look at mm-hmm. these, um, when we look at Dobbs, the court is really looking at the same information. There hasn't been a great deal of change in the landscape um, in terms of the, in fact, the data and information provided by Harvard and UNC was far more robust um, and far more supported um, 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 with hard numbers and the, explaining how their system works than prior cases were. So the record was fulsome. Um, and so what really seems to have changed is the composition of the court. Um, mm. um, when you look at how the lower courts were applying the Supreme Court precedent, they were like, okay, we've got it. We understand, you know, the rules as articulated by the Supreme Court. We're applying them. These these programs meet the standard as, a, as articulated by the Supreme Court. And so for the court to now say, you know, to change, um, 
it seems to be more about where the court, the composition of the court is and who the mm-hmm. justices are um, interpreting the rule than, than anything about what's happening and what the schools are doing. The only question I had, I guess, that was different in this case compared to other cases that we've seen is the presence of a plaintiff of color or a minority Mm -hmm. plaintiff. Um, Other affirmative action cases have been levied by white plaintiffs. Do you think that this played a factor? Like, do you think this offered an opportunity for them in in a unique way that perhaps having a white plaintiff didn't? Absolutely. I think that there was a real um, concerted effort on the part of Ed Blum um, to present this as not just affecting white students. Ed Blum is the individual who founded the Students for Fair Admissions, Mm -hmm. and he's been behind um, many, if not most, of the recent challenges um, to race-conscious admissions. Um, um, He's challenged, you know, Voting Rights Act. He's challenged um, in other contexts as well. And the problem, though, is that the courts below had found that there was not there was no proven discrimination against Asian American students um, after, you know, a trial in the Harvard case. Um, and in the UNC case, there were student interveners who included Asian American students who said, um, who spoke out in support and, and offered up very compelling testimony about um, the benefits of um, affirmative action um, and their experience on campus as well. Um, that the court did not acknowledge at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really seemed to be only concerned with some voices um, of students of color that really were supporting, um, you know, kind of ideological and policy preferences that they've previously stated. Um, And so that, you know, that doesn't explain it. The fact that there were Asian American plaintiffs doesn't completely explain the story because the prior, the, the lower court's, had not found that there was discrimination and the fact that there were also Asian American students um, um, who had intervened um, in support of affirmative action in the UNC case that weren't, you know, credited by the majority, by the majority in the opinion either. Thank you for that. Um, I want to move a little bit towards talking about the impact and and what we um, expect to see from here and what we at the ACLU want to do from here. Um, We talked a little bit about how we've seen affirmative action being banned by particular states. You know, California has already banned affirmative action in its public university system. We've seen the ripple effects in its education system and economy. Like, can you break some of down some of the changes that we, you know, could expect to see nationwide as soon as next year? Sure. I mean, one of the challenges, and this happened in California, is that um, when these kind of changes to the policies happen, mm-hmm. um, we see an overreading um, of the decisions. And so then um, even outside of, you know, colleges and universities, other entities understand, oh, this means we can't talk about race at all, or this means we, you know, we can't. And that's, that's not what the decision says. Mm-hmm. That, that's not what even the law in California required um, when Prop 209 was passed. But there is a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes the impacts worse than they would have been even if people had if if people had just followed the letter of the law. Um, so in this case, you know, the court was deciding um, um, 
what the issue was that was presented to it was about higher ed admissions in mm-hmm. specific, like admissions policies for um, colleges and universities. And so I, you know, we have, there is absolutely a broader campaign um, to reverse the gains that we've made and to uh, reverse the effort to acknowledge our racial inequality um, and kind of the, the aggressive steps we need to take to achieve and advance racial equity. Um, and so I have no doubt that this decision will be used and deployed um, to suggest that actions and policies that are very much still permitted, permissible, um, are no longer permissible. So what mm-hmm. we are working toward, and we want to make sure that students understand that they absolutely can and should still talk about um, their lived experience, the extent to which race has pay- played a role in in how they what they've overcome and how they how it has shaped their character in ways that are relevant um, for their application to college um, and why that would be important to their story. And it's still important for colleges and universities to both um, adopt policies that expand opportunity for all students uh, across all races and ethnicities, and then that they are also working to remove policies that get in the way of opportunity, right? And get in the way of students um, having a fair shot. So we've offered up examples of um, colleges and universities should do away with, um, you know, single bar standardized testing, which has been shown to disadvantage students of color, um, even when they, and doesn't bear significant correlations to who will be successful in college and beyond. Um, That increased financial aid to ensure that that is not a barrier because, you know, it really shouldn't matter who your parents are, how much money your family has, um, um, or where you live, like what opportunities are available to you. Um, we also, you know, encourage um, and expect to see that colleges and universities will continue to engage in um, in outreach to, to schools um, that they have previously neglected and overlooked. Um, in marginalized communities to ensure that there is a robust pipeline um, for students coming from those schools and to really look at students and how they have taken advantage of opportunity and how they have succeeded in the context of the opportunities available to them. Do you believe that institutions of higher education will seek to find other pathways to promote racial equity in their admissions processes without using affirmative action? Like, will they be able to effectively continue on in the pursuit of creating a diverse student body um, amidst this decision? Absolutely. I mean, affirmative action was always understood to be just one piece of a larger effort um, that was intended to be multifaceted and multi-pronged to really get us to a place um, where all students are able to um, are able to apply and be a part of um, of the higher education experience um, and have access to those opportunities. So, and we've seen some schools um, even before the decision came down express their commitment mm-hmm. um, um, to to diversity, express their commitment to ensuring that um, they're reaching out to all students. Um, so we we know that that schools will meet the challenge, and for those that don't, you know, they will. Um, run the risk of uh, violating um, our anti-discrimination laws would say that you can't, you know, so Title VI and um, the 14th Amendment also say that you can't discriminate, right? And so that you have to ensure that 
Okay. And finally, as we wrap up, I I wanted to ask and note um, Justice Brown Jackson's dissent. She recused herself from the Harvard decision. She was included in the UNC decision. She wrote a very powerful dissent. Uh, This is an excerpt in quotes with let them eat cake obliviousness. Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. This is our first, one of our first notable tastes of what she'll bring to the court. And I'm wondering, you know, as we're all sitting here, we're digesting this opinion People are seeing it on their TV screens. What can we do to ensure that colorblindness for all is not how we proceed here? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been working, certainly in the racial justice program um, that I lead, like we, we've we been thinking about and working on um, recognizing that a lot of these problems and disparities start well before students are getting into the college admissions process, right? And we see this in the K-12. So, you know, we've been um, challenging um, the um, discrimination in the discipline of students um, in the school-to-prison pipeline Mm -hmm. and just the the fact that um, students, um, that Black and Brown students are often um, criminalized for routine adolescent conduct. And so we brought a case in North Carolina um, challenging um, the police arresting students for what was deemed disorderly conduct for routine. Um, And we represented a class of Black students and students with disabilities. And the court in that case recognized that how um, students were being policed was unfair and that it was actually um, affecting um, and would affect their educational opportunities going forward. And so there are a number of ways that we can ensure that we are not erased, as the court is trying to do um, and trying to erase our difference, but that we really lean into that richness um, and that we recognize that, in fact, our Constitution um, fully recognizes that richness and allows us to um, to express that and to learn about it and that it's a critical part of our um, um, of our role in protecting that and protecting students' right to learn um, um, and thrive and have those opportunities. Awesome. I think that that is a a great place for, you know, people to begin. If they want to support our work, they can absolutely do so. Support your work and your program specifically, Renika. Um, I also think it's about a framework shift, right? This is a a way that we can see the world. Um, You know, I think in a lot of ways, this case, um, this decision will be used as a means to divide us and to tell us that allyship and solidarity means a penalty for some and a gain for others, as opposed to ensuring that we can all thrive. Um, And so I think, you know, holding that in our hearts as we go out into the world amidst the Supreme Court's decision, um, I think ultimately, as we have seen, even with the overturn of Roe, in the last year, we've seen people show up in their communities and and fight back, and that ultimately, I think we have the ability to to uh, have another say, if you will. Absolutely, I think we keep we keep fighting forward, um, and we keep telling our stories. We can and will do that, um, um, and we'll fight for um, the opportunities that that we've all earned. Perfect. 
Renika, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, Vanessa Handy, and Rachel Kennedy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Lila Sheridan is our intern. Until next week, stay strong.